Well, I grew up um, very unchurched. Like my my parents sort of exposed me a bit to church, but they weren't really into it, and I um, wasn't into it either. When I was about 11, I decided that I was an atheist, and it wasn't until um, I met my boyfriend uh, about halfway through uh, college that I realized that someone could be, you know, a scientific and an intellectual person and, and have a real Christian faith as well. And I was very confused by this. I thought that they were completely incompatible or something. And um, it really made me start reconsidering a bit, like, what if I'd been wrong about these assumptions that I'd had all along about God, that he he didn't even exist at all. And certainly that Jesus wasn't, the story of Jesus wasn't true either. I was reading Finding God in the Questions by Dr. Timothy Johnson and just... It's sort of like Bible 101, like it's very sort of basic material, but it's telling the story of Jesus and, um, and about his, his followers, the early history of the church. And I just in the middle of the book, I, I just dropped it and thought to myself, I believe this story. I believe the gospel. How did, how did this happen to me? Like, um, this story is just so compelling. I absolutely believe that he, he came and he taught and he died and he rose and, and oh my gosh, that means God exists as well. But at the same time as I was reveling in this achievement of my own of, you know, finding, oh, I've discovered the existence of God, there was absolutely a sense of I was coming to God and also God was coming to me. Like God came to where I was and put things in my path, in my life that would lead me to search for him and to help me find him in my life. When I didn't believe in God, everything was up to me. I got to set my own standards about, you know, my conduct, my ethics, um, and everything. I got to completely decide the trajectory of my life. And now I feel more compelled to search out His purpose for me. And I also feel more assurance that that it's a solid plan. Like anything I could have come up with on my own was maybe not the best thing, maybe not worthwhile or, or whatever, but. Now I feel more like I'm seeking out something that is, is guaranteed to be fruitful. I want to welcome all of you here. I know that for those of you that are right now watching uh, me on video, this might be a little unusual. Uh, to watch a pastor on video or that whole concept. Uh, we are, are one church that meets in four different locations, and this weekend uh, we have 12 different services that uh, I know that many of you uh, at different times will be at uh, as you're watching this. Uh, so wherever you are right now, Colmill Road, uh, West Club Campus, uh, right here at Briar Creek or in our brand new venue, uh, the Bay here at Briar Creek, which will be around for a few weeks around Easter here. To all of you, happy Easter. Uh, there is an, a tradition in the early church uh, that was that uh, the pastors of the first two or three centuries, uh, they would get up in front of their congregations on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and they would say, uh, Christ is risen. And the congregation would respond in unison, Christ is risen indeed. And so to connect ourselves with uh, almost 2,000 years now of history of celebrating what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, we're going to do just that. All right, so I'm going to say Christ is risen, and I want all of you at every campus that we have uh, that are watching this to respond together now uh, in unison that Christ is risen indeed, okay? Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. There you go. All right. 
We are in the midst of a series called Unexpected. And the idea is that Jesus' encounters with people were almost always unexpected. Jesus had a way uh, of shattering ideas and expectations, boxes that we wanted to put him into. He rarely did what he was supposed to do. And he ended up being crucified by, mostly by religious people because he didn't do what they thought he should do. Today we're going to talk about an unexpected answer that Jesus gave to a guy named Nicodemus. It's in John chapter 3. If you have your Bible, John is in the New Testament. It is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't know where that is, then you open the Bible if you have one to the table of contents and you just find where John is and if the person next to you makes fun of you for that, I'll have them thrown out, okay? I can do that. So you find John and you look at it. If you don't have your Bible, I'll put it up here on the screen for you. And now Nicodemus, as I'm going to try and show you, represents two different kinds of people. Uh, the first is uh, he represents people who have opinions about God. Nicodemus has his own ideas about who God is and how God should behave, and he doesn't mind sharing them with Jesus or even telling Jesus that Jesus is wrong in a few areas about God. That's not the smartest strategy, by the way. He probably didn't realize that, but it's not. Um, I, uh, I'd say that most of you here uh, have some definite ideas about God. I know not all of you are Christians. In fact, some of you are against organized religion precisely because you think organized religion conflicts with what you think God is like. I was watching Dateline the other night, and they had four uh, people on there talking about whether or not Satan was real. And one was a really outspoken Christian pastor, and uh, another one was a guy named Deepak Chopra, uh, who is, as you know, or many of you know, the spiritual mentor for America's pastor, Oprah. Um, and he told, um, he told this pastor that he shouldn't be saying that his view was the only right one because his idea was primitive. And what occurred to me as he was saying that is, it was that Deepak Chopra's opinions are every bit as opinionated as this pastor's was. Everybody has opinions about who God is and how God behaves and what's right and what's wrong. Nicodemus also represents your average religious person, somebody who is moral, somebody who is good. Uh, Actually, when it came to religion, Nicodemus was varsity. He was what they called a a Pharisee. Pharisees were people who took moral goodness to a, a whole nother level. The Pharisees had 613 official commands, uh, not to include all the, all, the, all the other fine print about pretty much everything. Uh, for example, if you ate and forgot to say the blessing when you, when you ate, they said that you had to return to the place where you ate it and say it on location before the food digested. So 10 hours later, you, know, you remember, oh, I forgot to say the blessing. You got to truck back to the restaurant. You know, sometimes I think of how funny that would be today. Uh, you know, you, you, excuse me, I, I ate breakfast here this morning. I'm going to need everybody to move out of this spot. Uh, waiter, I need you to stand over here. We're going to have to re-simulate this meal as I, as I say the blessing. Um, the Pharisees clarified that children weren't responsible to say the blessing until they could eat something the size of an olive. Once you can eat an olive, though, you're on. It's, you're responsible. By the way, totally would not work for my kids. I'd be like, Allie, who's my three-year-old? Allie, you want to say the blessing? No! You know, like kids are, are just not spiritual, I, I think. But <laughs> Pharisees, in addition, had a bunch of religious rituals, little ceremonies that you had to go through. And if you did them, God was, was happy with you, and probably you would go to heaven. You'd be okay. You know, think stuff like, like baptism or, or, in some traditions, confirmation, 
Or uh, in the tradition I grew up in, you prayed a prayer and uh, you shook the preacher's hand and you got baptized and a number of traditions that we had around that. Right? So people who have opinions about God or people who are religiously ritualistic, that's who Nicodemus represents. And in John 3, he has a conversation with Jesus about what God is really like and who is going to heaven, who God approves of. And Jesus gives him a rather surprising unexpected answer verse 7 truly truly says you must be born again we're going to talk about what that means because it's probably a phrase born again that you have heard but it's one of those phrases that most people i find don't understand and just misunderstand that concept uh, this week you know uh, the, the uh, champion ncaa championship game on on monday night uh, i bought my kids little carolina shirts to wear on monday uh, now, before you Duke fans get mad, I'm just going to tell you the way things are at my house is whichever team has made it the farthest we pull for, because I realize that for some of you that is totally anathema, uh, but we just figure that if one of them wins, it's good for the ACC, good for the triangle, good for our church, we're pulling for Jesus, and so that's, what we, that's who we pull for. All right, so I bought them Carolina shirts, and on the way, I was driving them to school on Monday, on the way, my three-year-old just announces uh, she doesn't want to wear a shirt, why not? I don't like Carolina. I don't want to pull for Carolina. All right, no, 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 hold on. It's not the point here. She, so you don't want to pull for Carolina? She says, no, I'm pulling for the princesses. The princesses. Like, you know, Ariel and, and Cinderella and Aurora, because that's just her world, you know? She doesn't understand. She, she has a very childish concept. Well, a lot of people misunderstand this concept. Right? For some people, when you say born again, it, it brings up the idea of an emotional, deeply cathartic religious awakening. You think about that, that old George Clooney movie, Brother, Where Art Thou? You know, where his brother gets caught up in this moment. He gets singing, and before he knows it, he's down in the river, and he's chanting, he's getting, he's getting baptized. Uh, Rick Langston, our, um, our campus pastor over at Cole Mill Road, uh, he was, he, he, all of our campus pastors last week shared how they came to Christ, and he was talking about how he was in the church service, and they just they kept singing, Just As I Am. You remember this, like the 58th stanza of Just As I Am. You know, he's, he, he walked forward. He didn't even know why. There's just a group of people going forward. He said, when I got down there, I didn't know what was going on. Nobody was talking to me, but everybody was swaying and going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank. I didn't know what. So I just I started saying with him, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And, and after a while, I started crying. And then I moved, made my way back to my seat. And then later, my grandma told me, I've been born again. I've been born again. And somebody asked me, like, you know what that means? And he's like, no, but thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. He, it's, it's an emotional experience for a lot of people. Other people think it means converting to some tight moral structure or maybe even a, a political platform. And many people are not really excited about being a part of that. In fact, I found this rather humbling this week. Pollsters say that over 70% of Americans would not want a born-again Christian as their neighbor. I was like, ouch, I lower property values? You know, and then I found, and then, by the way, I found this other stat that said that half of all Americans claim to be born again. And so I put that together, and I'm like, that means most born-again people wouldn't want to live next to other born-again people. I don't really know what that means. But anyway, I'm going to show you that both of these definitions of born-again are wrong. And in some ways, they're the opposite of the true meaning, what Jesus is saying here in, in being born again. But I want you to see, before we dive into this, that this is such an important question. Because I want you to see what Jesus says in verse, in verse 7, all right? I already took you through it. But before, by the way, before he says this, he busts out what we call in Hebrew the double amen. The double amen. Truly, truly. 
right? If you got some of your translations say, verily, verily, right? That's kind of like in Hebrew when, when you got called by your full name as a kid. You know, I mean, my name is JD, and when my mom and dad broke out the James David, that meant that I was really in trouble, and I better pay attention. He says, truly, truly, you must, you must be born again. Now, I want you to think about something, all right? And that is that if Jesus has any validity to you whatsoever, I mean, you think he's a great man, you think he's a wise teacher, a misunderstood rebel, whatever, okay? You give him any validity whatsoever, you ought to pay attention because he says in unequivocal, crystal clear terms, you must be born again if you have any ambition of ever walking through heaven's gates. That means that if you are not born again, then you are staking your entire hope of eternity on the fact that Jesus was wrong here. And if you're okay with that, then fine, all right? But you should know what you're doing. Jesus said that unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And I'm going to tell you, I believe that when you understand what it means to be born again, you will see that millions, millions of people sitting in churches throughout the year, and especially on a day like today, are not born again and will never be found in heaven. Once you look at verse 1, how this conversation goes. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Two things you should hear in that, religion and success. Pharisee, that's religion. Ruler of the Jews, that's success. This guy has got, as he sees it, the approval of God and the approval of others. He is the best of the best. But watch verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, what's the significance of him coming at night? Some people say that it's because he's ashamed. Others say it's because he just knew Jesus was a busy guy and this is the time that he could catch him. I, I, don't, I don't know. It, it doesn't explain it to you. I, you know, that's, that's, that's just speculation. But I do know this. Night in the Gospel of John represents a kind of spiritual darkness. Nicodemus, you see, what he's trying to show you is that he had a face that he put on in the day. And that face was the face of a man really successful. A man who had it all together. But at night, you see, at night he knew something was not quite right. For all of his religion and all of his rituals and all his success, something was missing. And I point that out because I know that many of you are like that. You have a face that you wear by day. By day you have it all together. But at night, at night... You know that there's something that's not right. There's something that down deep in your soul is not in harmony with God. And so he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God. Now, by the way, who is we in this? That's all his big important friends, his other rulers and other Pharisees, right? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I've always thought his response here was interesting because he just cuts him off. He doesn't say, hey, man, thanks for your support. That means a lot coming from a guy like you. I got a new book coming out, you know, the Bible. I'd love you to put a blurb on the front of it. You know, instead he he just looked at this guy and says, hey, man, cut the junk. I'm not really impressed with your religion. I'm not impressed with your success. I'm not impressed with the fact that all the important, smart people agree with you. Nicodemus responds sort of bewilderedly, but how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb 
and be born. You got to hear the sarcasm here. It's almost the bewildered. He's, he's like, what? I mean, he thinks Jesus' cheese has totally fallen off his cracker. He's like, you mean that to get to heaven, I've got to climb back into my mom? First of all, that's gross. Second of all, second of all, she worked really hard to get me out, and now I'm like 50, and plus I feel there's all kinds of psychological problems with this. You know, I, I, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, I'm talking about a, a different kind of birth. And so Jesus goes on to explain what he means in the next couple verses. Nicodemus finally says to him, verse 9, how can these things be? And so Jesus busts out the double amen again. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, we, by the way, don't miss this little bit of Jesus sarcasm here. Who is the we now? Remember Nicodemus had said, we, me and all my important friends think you're a teacher come from God. And Jesus is like, well, we, that is me, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. This is what we think, just say it, okay? That's all I'm going to tell you. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. All right, in this passage, there are three dimensions of being born again that Jesus covers. We'll walk, them through, walk you through them one at a time, rather briefly, okay? And then, and then ask you the question, have you been born again? Here is number one. You must be born again to a new source of authority in what you think about God. You must be born again to a new source of authority in what you think about God. Nicodemus has objections with what Jesus teaches. Being born again doesn't make sense to him. It seems impossible. The whole concept is offensive. But what Jesus' response to him is not to try to reason it out with him. He says, look, you need to decide, Nicodemus, who gets to determine what is true. Are you really in a place to contradict what I tell you about these things? You see verse 13? Here's his logic. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What he's saying is, Nicodemus, you've never ascended to heaven and seen ultimate truth from God's perspective. So your opinions about God, no matter how lofty, no matter how intelligent, no matter how sophisticated, whether or not you have more degrees than the thermometer, right? They're just opinions. You don't speak from authority, and you don't speak from experience. Me, on the other hand, at least I claim to, come down from heaven, and I speak of what I actually do know and understand and have seen. Here's an analogy I use a lot. I'm sure I've used it in teaching you. I use it quite often when I'm talking one-on-one with people. But basically what Jesus is saying there in verse 13 is, if you'll just kind of go on a little mental experiment with me here, imagine for just a minute that we were the only people who had ever lived. And for all of our lives, we'd only been in this room. This room has no doors, no windows, no way in, no way out. And for as long as we can remember, we've only been right here, and we are the only people that each other knows. All right, well, one day, the philosophical among us get in an argument about what's on the other side of the wall. And so there's different theories out there. Some people think, oh, it's a, a room just like this one. Other people think, no, it's, it's nothingness. Some people think, oh, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's a room, but everything's upside down and backwards. It's like the bizarro version of this room. And so we argue back and forth. You know, after a while, these arguments become rather ridiculous, don't they? Because none of us have ever seen what's out there. We're just speculating. All right? that, that, that's what opinions about God are actually like. That's what opinions about ultimate reality are like. Because none of us has really ever seen it. Nobody's ascended into heaven where, where God or ultimate truth would exist. 
Well, all of a sudden, if into this room, someone just appeared, just kind of came right to the ceiling, and it's this being of light, and just came and just sort of hovered here about 10 feet above the ground, and just, you know, oh, just sort of was there. And says, hi, I'm from the other side of the wall. And begins to explain to us what's over there. Begins to tell us what, is, what, is, what we don't know. Let me ask you, listen, a carefully worded question. Can you contradict what he says? No. I mean, in order to contradict, you have to have experiences and, and facts of your own, of which you don't have any because nobody's ever been on the other side of the wall. Do you have to believe him? No. But it's not because you can contradict him. It's just because you don't think he's telling you the truth. And so at that point, you have to decide, is this person who he says he is? Because if he is who he says he is, then what he says is true. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying, the question is not, can you understand, comprehend, or agree with what I'm saying? He said, the question, Nicodemus, is, am I who I say I am? Christian faith is believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and thus believing that what he says is true, even when it contradicts what you think. You see, I would say that Nicodemus is an American, probably more like an American than anybody else in the Bible except for Doubting Thomas. He says, we know, Jesus, you're a teacher come from God. In other words, Jesus, we know you're a great man, one of the greatest influences on Western thought. But we're not sure really about all this other stuff you're teaching. Some of it seems offensive to us, unrealistic, unscientific. That's what many of us do to Jesus. Maybe it's not being born again that's the difficulty for you. Maybe it's the whole problem of miracles. Maybe you object to what the Bible teaches about various aspects of morality. You feel like it's hopelessly outdated. Or maybe you have a problem when Jesus says that the only way to be saved is through him. Listen, I've got opinions about God, just like you. At times I've thought, you know, if I were God, I would let all good, sincere people go to heaven. Well, I don't really think there should be a permanent hell. If I were God, good people would never suffer on earth. If I were God, everyone who tithed would never lose their job. If I were God, then if you're a good parent, then your kids will automatically grow up to be successful and love you. Now I thought, God, you know, I'm going to be a good parent and I'm counting on my girls marrying doctors and living next door and going to church where I preach, <laughs> right? I think God should be intensely interested in my girls' swim meets. Because their little sense of self-esteem is on the line, and he should make them win every single time. I know some of you are like, well, my daughter's competed against your daughter. I don't care, okay? I think he should make them win. But sometimes God doesn't do what I think he should do. And I have to decide whether or not I get to define God or if God gets to define himself. Don't feel like it's different for me. I might be a pastor, but I'm just like you. So here's the question. Is Jesus who he says he is? And if so, will you submit to what he says about God? You see, at Easter, we celebrate the resurrection, which was the ultimate proof that Jesus was who he says he was. And that's what he's saying to the world. He says, hey, I know you can't substantiate it. I know you find this offensive, a lot of it. But am I who I say I am? Because if he rose from the dead, it changes everything. Got a letter um, a couple of years ago from a guy named, uh, um, I won't tell you his name, but he, uh, he, was, uh, he was a graduate student at Duke. And he said, I, I've never really gone to church in my life. Yours is one of the first I've ever been to. He said, but I'm intrigued by your, the, the message from the Bible that you are preaching. He goes specifically this whole deal about Jesus raising from the dead. 
right? And then he just shifts into, he only called me by my last name for as long as I know him, Greer. And not Pastor Greer, just Greer. Greer, you need to help me decide whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. It changes what I major in. It changes what career path I take. It changes even who I will marry. I've got to decide, did he raise from the dead? That is a very well-articulated statement of the issue. Is Jesus who he says he is? Listen, I know that you are smart people. we got more PhDs here in the triangle than anywhere in the world. And I know that many of you have ascended high with your knowledge. But do you really think that you can know it all? Do you really feel like you can correct Jesus? Think about what you, what you, what you knew five years ago. And think about how you look at yourself five years ago from today's vantage point. You know, I mean, aren't you like me? I look at me five years ago and I'm like, what an idiot. Chances are, five years from now, I'm going to look back on me now and think, what an idiot again. Right? What do you think it looks like if Jesus is who he says he is? His knowledge compared to ours has to be pretty overwhelming. So that's the question then for Nicodemus or for us, is Jesus who he says he is? Here's number two. You must be born again to a new foundation of righteousness. You must be born again to a new foundation of righteousness. In verse 6, all right? As I explained, a lot of people think born again means to switch into adopting a tight, prudish moral code. You get religious. You start voting Republican. You wear denim jumpers or whatever. Once you look, Nicodemus, listen, he is impeccable. He is already super morally strict. He is righteous. He's successful. He's praised by everybody. He homeschools his kids. He does everything that you're supposed to do. Jesus says, look at this, verse 6, that's not good enough. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I know that's a little confusing, but what that means is you need a new birth of righteousness, a whole new basis for righteous standing before God. And it will not come from what you have done in your flesh, but from what Christ has done for you and given to you through the Spirit or by the Spirit as a gift. Salvation, as Jesus explains it, is not becoming morally better. It is having a whole new basis of righteousness. Christ's righteousness credited to your account as a gift. Christ lived the life that you were supposed to live and then died the death that you were condemned to die in your place so that what he did can be credited to you. And that's what it means to be born again, is you're born again to a new basis of righteousness. Now think of it like this. Say I'm a, a recent college graduate working my first job at Apple Computers. It's a good job, but it doesn't pay that much. And so somewhere I just decide that I want to buy an island in the Caribbean. So I go to the bank and I I ask if I can get a loan to buy the island. And so they look back at me and they say, well, how much do you have in the bank right now? I'm like, well, nothing. In fact, I got a bunch of college loans. Like, well, well, how do you plan on paying for this? I I don't really know, but I tell you what, every paycheck, I'm going to take a little bit out of it and I'm going to put it down. And then maybe at some point I'll have enough money to, for you to loan me the money to buy the island, right? Well, you know, they're going to look back at me and say, that would take years upon years and lifetimes. Chances are I'm going to work a lifetime and never have enough to buy the island. But what if Steve Jobs, right? What if he credited to me his bank account? What if he walked in there and said, my bank account is his now? Well, all of a sudden I've got money to spare. 
What Jesus did is he gave us his righteousness. It's not that he taught us how to add a little bit more and more and more to our account. He gave us his own. You see, there are two ways of seeing Jesus. One is teacher. The other is savior. Nicodemus saw Jesus as a teacher. He's like, Jesus, teach me what I must do to save myself. Give me the missing ingredient. Help me put some more money in my, in my account. The other is, is savior. That is, Jesus is not primarily a teacher who teaches me what I must do to get to heaven. But he's a savior who did for me what I could not do for myself and offers to give it to me as a gift. To receive that, we have to die to our own basis of righteousness and be born again to a brand new one. Rich, successful people like Nicodemus don't want to hear that because they've spent their whole lives working to become something that exalts them above other people and makes them better and more worthy than others before God. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that doesn't impress me at all because what is born of sinful flesh will always be sinful flesh. The prophet Isaiah had a very, very descriptive way of saying this. He basically said the same thing. Isaiah chapter 64. He said, all of our righteousness is like a filthy rag. And I know most of our English translations, that's the way they translate it. And that's simply because we have a Victorian nicety that kind of guides how we talk to each other. But literally what they say in Hebrew, ask any Hebrew scholar, all our righteousness is like a menstrual rag is what it says in other words listen this is in other words what isaiah said is you think that you're going to impress god with the way that you've lived in your religion all your righteousness is like a bloody tampon and i know that's offensive and i know it's disgusting and isaiah meant it to be disgusting and offensive he said that's what it's going to be like you saying yeah god i'm better than others i've been pretty morally good and that's why you should accept me and approve of me. He said, that's like laying a bloody tampon at God's feet and saying, that's it. That's my entrance into heaven. You must be born again, Jesus said. You think that you're okay. You say, I, I look around and I'm not a bad person. You must be born again. Or how about from this angle, businessman? You look at yourself, you say, I've always done okay. I, I've been through ups and downs, but I managed to get myself under control, and I pull myself up, and I managed to, to win in the end. And so you just naturally think that when you go into the afterlife that you're going to make it there too. No, listen, no. You must be born again. Without it, you will never make it to heaven no matter how much you think you are good, successful, no matter how you compare to others or no matter how many wins you've had through your life. Unless you're born again, your road at the end of your life stops and you go to hell. You must be born again. Thirdly, you must be born again by new life within. That's verse 8. Remember verse 6? That which is born of flesh of flesh, and that which is born of the spirit of spirit. Verse 8 gives a very powerful analogy showing you what this looks like. He says, the wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear it sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I've heard that verse used to justify any kind of erratic behavior. Like the wind. That's not what it's talking about, okay? The Spirit, he says, is like the wind. It's not from inside of you. You cannot work it up. You cannot control it. 
It is a power outside of you that blows new life into you. You see, Nicodemus looks at Jesus like a teacher who will help him improve his existing life. Jesus is talking about the power of a whole new creation that comes from encountering the Spirit, from knowing God. You see, in all of Nicodemus' religion, he forgot the most basic thing, and that was knowing God. That's what was missing. That's why he felt like with even all of his religion and all of his success, it's why he felt like he was still in the nighttime. By the way, when Jesus uses this analogy, almost every Bible scholar agrees that he is going back to something that the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36, where Ezekiel has a vision of a valley of dry bones, dead bones that have decomposed and people that have decomposed and there's nothing left except this heap of bones. And what God says to Elisha is preach to these bones. And he's like, why would I preach to bones? They can't hear me. He's like, just do it. And while he's preaching to them, this wind blows through and these bones get back into the right format. And then flesh fills these bones and these dead, dry, dusty, rotting bones live again. And when he uses this analogy, what he's saying is, Nicodemus, you are that valley of dry bones. And what I am going to do is I can breathe new life into you. For some of you, listen, dry bones is what you feel like. You're successful, yes, but in all your success, there's something that still feels dry and dead in you. You've been, many of you, through religious rituals. Now, you've prayed, you've checked boxes, you've gotten baptized, any number of things, but deep down in the nighttime, you know that something is still not right. That's because you've never been born again. You're separated from God, and your soul cries out for him. That's why it's not working and not fulfilling. Some of you are so frustrated at your continual failure in, the, in, in, in just trying to live right. And you just, it's just one defeat to the, to the next. And I'm telling you, that's the dry bones. And what Jesus is saying is you must be born again. You do not need a teacher who stands over you and condemns you and tells you how to live and says, just get back up and try harder. You need a Savior who can restore you to God. You need to have His Spirit blowing through you. You need need His love washing over you. You need His power surging in and through you. The question I've been building to the whole time, this one, have you been born again? I am not calling you to an emotional experience. All right? At all of our campuses, listen to me. I am not calling you to an emotional experience. There is no evidence that Nicodemus is emotional here or that Jesus ever plays on his emotions. Our disciples are not anywhere in the background humming just as I am. All right? No, it's not emotional. I'm not talking, by the way, about going through another ritual. I'm not going to, at the end of today, say, hey, now if you'll do this, if you'll pray this and say this and check this and, and, and go here and meet us here and shake my hand, then it's going to be okay. Right? we got all kinds of people who have done things like that. Nicodemus has done that. He's done everything. I'm never shaking my hand, but you know what I mean. All right? Nicodemus has been through thousands of rituals. You must be born again. I'm not asking if you've gotten religion at any point in your life. I'm not even asking about your church attendance. I remember hearing this when I was a student in, in high school in our, our youth group. My youth pastor used to say, going to church doesn't make you a Christian anymore. Going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. Or going to Starbucks makes you a $9 cup of coffee. 
right? Or going to Dunkin' Donuts makes you a cop or, or, or however you want to fill that in, okay? I mean, it's, he said, none, he says, it just means that you go to those places. You don't need those things. You need to be born again. I'm not asking you if you believe in God or, or even if you believe in Jesus. You know, the Bible says this in the book of James, even the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble. And I understand that he rose from the dead. Some of them even fear him. I'm not asking you those things. I'm asking you, have you been born again? Have you acknowledged Jesus as the authority, both of what you think and how you live? Have you ever surrendered your opinions to his? I was once sharing Christ with a Muslim girl. And in the middle of talking to her about this, she kept saying, no, I believe Jesus was a prophet, but he, I don't believe this about God and this about God. And what he said contradicts here. No. And finally, I looked at her and I said, hey, let me just ask you this. If Jesus rose from the dead, right, and he stood right here beside me, and he looked at you, and he called your name, and he said, this is the truth, would you follow what he said, even if it contradicted everything you believe about God, and even if it means that you faced rejection from your parents? And she looked back at me, and she said, no. She said, I don't think so. And I told her, again, humbly speaking, I was like, well, that's your problem. The problem is, is you are not ready for the lordship of Christ. Some of you have never been convinced Jesus is Lord, because if he was Lord, you wouldn't follow him. Why would God reveal himself to you if he knows that when you did it, you wouldn't follow him anyway? anyway. By the way, she did. A couple nights later, she, she, well, she found me the next morning, and she said, I, last night, I became convinced that I would follow God and truth everywhere, and I've decided to put my faith in Christ. Have you acknowledged Jesus as the authority, both of what you think and how you live? Have you given up all your hopes of being good enough to get to God and put all your trust in what Jesus has done for you? Is Jesus alive and at work in your soul? Because what I'm afraid is that a lot, listen, a lot of you have religion. One of our campus pastors last week, I was, heard him at Brad over at West Club. He said, I started to hang around the new circle of friends. And in this new circle of friends, they kept talking a lot about Jesus. And I only knew church. So I'm afraid some of you, that's all you know. You know church ritual and attendance. You believe, yes, but it's like the demons believe. Yes, Jesus exists, but he's not the Lord of your life. What is the difference in what a demon, how a demon believes and how I believe? What Jesus is talking about is that my belief has taken me to a place where I have gotten on my knees and said, Jesus, you are the authority both of how I think and how I live. You are the Son of God, and I will follow you. I've heard it said that most people will miss heaven. Many people, especially here in the South, will miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance between the head and the heart, because they believed in Jesus with their head. They knew he existed. They believed some things about him, but they had never embraced it with their heart and been born again. You must be born again. You can be born again right now. In just a minute, I'm going to have you bow your heads at all of our campuses to pray together. And if there is faith at work in your heart, then you can respond to Christ. I will even give you a way that you can express it. So what I'm going to ask is that at all of our campuses, everywhere, right now, together, we bow our heads. If you're like, well, I'm uncomfortable bowing my head, that's okay. That's okay. You can just look right at me. That's fine. But if there is faith at work in your heart, 
when you are ready and you know you want to be born again. Right now, would you just say to him, if this represents the prayer of your heart, Jesus, I surrender. I want you to think about what that means. Jesus, I surrender. Jesus, I believe. Let me ask you to do something here, and I, I'm not going to have you come up here. I, I told you that. But I want you to acknowledge that. I want you to acknowledge it between yourself, between God. It's a very simple thing I'm going to ask you to do. Whatever campus you are, I'm going to ask you this question. If right now you are surrendering to and receiving Christ, would you do something that will take a little initiative, and that is right now just lift your hand and say, right now I am receiving Christ. Lift it up. Where I, the, the place where I am right now, if you're live in front of me, raise your hand. At our campuses, West Club and Cole Mill, our group meeting in the Bay, evening campus. Raise your hand right now. I see those of you in front of me that have raised your hands. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for those whose hands are lifted up right now. Not trying to go through a ritual, but are encountering Christ. God, it is not words of a prayer that save. It is Jesus Christ who appeared to Nicodemus and who calls for our obedience. God, for those that have prayed to receive you, God, I pray that this moment, this moment, would be the most significant life-changing moment of their entire lives. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We had some that raised their hand to say they were putting their faith in Christ. And would you put your hands together and let them know how much you, how much you rejoice with them. And all of our campuses, you guys clap, put your hands together. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to take a moment, okay? Before any of our worship teams come or our campus pastors, I want you to take a moment. I'm going to ask everybody, everybody, uh, everybody uh, at all of our campuses here to pull out your worship guide. And inside of your worship guide is a little card. And in that card right here, the sermon notes, there's a thing where you can tear it off. It says April 12, 2009. I want all of you right now at once to just rip it off, okay, and take it off so nobody feels, feels funny about this. And if you prayed, all right, with me, I want you to indicate that on this card. We're going to ask everybody to fill this card out, and I'm going to give you about a minute to do so. But you'll see there, there's a space on the back that where you say, I'm receiving Christ as Savior today. We would love for you to let us know that. All right, it's not so we can, not so we can, can uh, send you, you know, a, a bunch of junk and, and, and come to your house. We're not doing that, okay? It's just so we can let you know how you can take some of the next steps and, and put that ball back in your court. So you take a minute. I'm going to give you a minute to fill that out and, uh, and use the next, uh, next 30 seconds, next minute to do that.